But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 202, and it's entitled, What's the point of the WTA if we don't stick together? What is this episode about, James? Well, we're taking you back to Body Serve history class. I think we can call it that now. We've done enough of these. Because of the pandemic-related shutdown, there is so little to report in tennis. There is... You know, only exhibition tennis happening still. Did you think at this time last year, pandemic-related shutdown would be part of your lexicon? That's a rhetorical question, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it gives us an opportunity to look back at the history of tennis and look into things closely that we were already interested in. So when you ask me what the title means, I can tell you that that was a quote by Christine Evert, the dominant player of the 1970s, after her about-face as she became a more political figure on the WTA. Which may be unknown to some folks. I don't feel that Chris Evert is represented as a political figure in the history of tennis, when in fact she very clearly was, even from a very young age. Part of this episode is about looking at Chris Evert, how we talk about her, how she was viewed then in American pop culture, and how constricting her image was, and how she repeatedly sometimes confirmed it, and in many ways struck out on her own. And that's something that is often overlooked, and I don't think she talks about a lot in her commentary career. This comes against the backdrop of the women's tour getting off the ground in the early 70s, and this first major women's professional league trying to survive amidst the backdrop of women's liberation in the United States against shifting gender roles in the United States against the backdrop of women wanting more than just taking care of the household. But at the same time, we see from Chris Everett and Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova as they fight to build and expand the WTA, that their femininity and how they display it publicly becomes a point of contestation. And it ended up being a no-win situation for all women involved because there was no way to be a woman athlete in the 1970s that would satisfy anybody or everybody. And with Chris Everett in particular, she's represented as the ice queen, as having ice in her veins, being aloof, being the girl next door, the great beauty, the one who is celebrated for not breaking a sweat on court, that she could beat somebody six love, six love, but have it only be remarkable because she did it so easily and not exert herself too much. And so when I say that it was a no-win situation in terms of in terms of how these women were received by the public, what I mean is even the ideal feminine archetype in women's sport, Chris Everett, was criticized at every turn And the goalpost for how she should behave as a woman athlete changed constantly based on 
seeming whims. You may ask, why now? What's the purpose of this episode today? Aside from having nothing but time on our hands, the murmurs of a merger between, between the WTA and ATP earlier this year had us thinking, basically, what's the history of this idea? What have been the relations between the ATP and the WTA throughout history? And while this episode is not really about that, it sort of sparked that interest in us to think about what have been the arguments about equal prize money, especially, over the years? And what are some of the ways that the men have actively worked to undercut the progress of the WTA over the years? Because some of the arguments that you will hear today against equal prize money are the exact same arguments verbatim that folks were using in 1970, in 1975, in 1992, in 1999, in 2002. You get the gist. Additionally, there's this theme of women's tennis being a uniquely politicized sport, that that the founders of women's tennis were basically forming a, a collective labor association, that the building of this tour was always and already political. As we go through the years when, when this sort of political action becomes less and less necessary or feels less immediate, where are we now? You know, who are the players that we expect to speak out? Do we expect any professional women's tennis players to to take up the mantle? And why? And why not? You may have suspected a lot of frustration from the greats of the WTA over the years, especially in the last couple of decades, with a shift in the the political direction of the tour, going from Billie Jean King, the original nine. Chris Everett being world number one and president of the WTA in her early 20s. Every single one of these top women players took to the court and then also made it a point to stay political to ensure the survival of the WTA tour. When did that change? What must Billie Jean King think looking at the landscape of the WTA tour now, knowing everything that she went through for it to even exist today? So we'll talk about that a bit later, but we just wanted to frame the episode in terms of what we hope to accomplish throughout. So we'll take you through the context of when the women's tour was formed, what was going on in tennis and the world at the time, look at a few characters like Billie Jean King and Chris Everett, look at the history of this discussion about equal prize money from the 1970s to today, and hopefully arrive at some very smart conclusions by the end. You've been looking for a way to build on our initial episode where we did a history of pre-open era tennis. Mm -hmm. You wanted a a vehicle to just slide into the open era. This is that Mercedes. Yes. So we finished that episode in 1968 and we're left with a fascinating time in tennis history and a chaotic time, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, let's talk about what was going on in the world, especially in the United States, at the time of the formation of the first women's professional tour. This is 1970. Tennis has entered the open era in 1968. There are still very few women playing professional tennis. In the 1960s, the United States saw this huge rush of social movements. The anti-racist civil rights movement, gay liberation, black nationalism, and of course, 
this, what we now know as second wave feminism, or women's liberation as it was called then. In the year that open-air tennis began, 1968, is one of the most fraught years in the history of North America. And, 1968 with right. a slew of political assassinations, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, tennis in the United States in 1968, it emerges in the open era against a backdrop of great socio-political unrest. Right. And dovetailing with that, like you said, is this burgeoning women's liberation movement. And it just so happens that Billie Jean King is the perfect figure to, to lead this movement and to lead professional women's tennis into the open era. And we're talking mainly about the American second wave of feminism because women's tennis was, I would say, a particularly American brand of sport. The way it was formed, the ideology behind it. You know, today there are a lot of women players from around the world who don't feel deeply connected to that ethos because it is quite American, individualistic, was born in a a liberal capitalist society, right? When you have Billie Jean King handing off the presidency to, say, Chrissy Everett, who then hands it off to Martina Navratilova and then Pam Shriver, you have this lineage of North American-centric leaders in women's tennis who are, in a lot of ways, first and foremost concerned with the survival of women's tennis. That break happens later on where that lineage is broken. So the second wave of feminism that started in the early to mid-60s is very much an academic movement. It's a civil rights movement. It's cultural. It's social. And there are so many different ideas that are thrown into this amalgam that we know as the second wave. But some of the key features are the critique of the domestic sphere after World War II, this direct confrontation of this 1950s housewife white domesticity. Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique was the key text of that period. It's about getting women equal treatment in the workplace. That's sort of like the liberal capitalist version of the second wave, getting women working, you know, in the corporate world. How did this differ from the first wave? The first wave was mainly focused on suffrage, on women's suffrage. So that's like the early 20th century in the UK and the US, getting women the vote. And we say first and second wave, there were many waves before that. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft in, what, the late 1700s was a pioneering feminist. Like, these are not the only feminist movements, but this is how we sort of codify them now. But the second wave touches on sexual liberation. The birth control pill being made widely available changed women's lives. It gave them freedom to decide what to do with their bodies, and therefore gave them economic freedom. Abortion legalization is a key feature of this movement. Gloria Steinem took up famously abortion rights and federal funding of daycares. So a lot of this is about giving women the freedom of choice by empowering them economically. And so you can see this in the way that women's tennis is formed. This is why equal prize money is such a key feature of the women's tour, because with equal pay, you not only give legitimacy, but you you give women the choice to take this on as a career, not just as a hobby, to make their own way in the world because, quite literally, now they can afford it. 
And this is also why it's extremely disappointing for a top WTA player today to then say, I don't think the women should be paid the same as the men. Or I don't care, even. Like the luxury right. of already being a multimillionaire makes them able to, to just sit there and say, I don't care. It's not something that even registers on my radar because I am so far removed from this struggle and the hard work that these women lived through for me to now be able to to be apathetic about it. Or to, frankly, regurgitate these talking points that the men have been throwing around for decades mm. without any critical thought. And so in that, I think you see both the success and the curse of a social movement like this because you want to get to a time when women getting treated the same is normal. But what can happen, and we are very much like know your history gaze, <laughs> what can happen is that new reality, while amazing, because the younger generation doesn't have to go through that pain that the older folks did, what happens is sometimes you're a little bit separated from how those changes came about. Like you, you may not know that the world used to be like this and that the changes just didn't happen. People actually suffered and fought for them. And it's more than just a Wikipedia entry that gives you the general gist. It's knowing the minutia of it. It's knowing that equal prize money at the slams happened finally across the board in 2007, but this was a fight tooth and nail every year. Every year, this was an issue that the woman had to fight for. And every year, the likes of Wimbledon came back with the pettiest of brush-offs. Right. So back to this idea of women's tennis being sort of born of and also a contributor to this feminist movement at the time. It was about economic liberation, but it was also about connecting so many different facets about how we live into politics. The mantra of that time was the personal is political. What I do with my body has been made political. If I choose to have an abortion, that is a political choice in that culture. And so Billie Jean King, as in, in many ways the founder of this version of women's tennis, saw herself and athletes in general as part of a larger political discussion. It wasn't just about, we want women to be treated equally in tennis. She said, I want to chip away at that traditional, clubby, rich white atmosphere that tennis has been built on. She said this in a discussion with John Wooden, the legendary UCLA coach in Sports Illustrated. She said, quote, we can't divorce ourselves from politics. I haven't met one human being who agrees with Avery Brundage that sport is above politics. It's an athlete's privilege, like anybody else's, to speak out on issues. This is in keeping with the protests at the 1968 Mexico City Games. This is a time when athletes are engaged politically in a way that they haven't been in a long time, if ever. And it becomes very clear why the powerful elite in tennis saw Billie Jean King as a nuisance, kind of at best an entertaining nuisance, and at worst an enemy. Participation in women's and girls' sport had already been seeing a huge jump in the late 60s and early 70s, so a lot of it is not directly attributable to Title IX. But what that refers to 
If you are not from the U.S., you may not be deeply familiar with that. It's a part of the Education Amendments Act of 1972, which said, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. This doesn't directly reference sport, but we talk about it most frequently in the context of sport. This addressed both high school and collegiate level sports, so it doesn't make women's professional sport legally protected. But what it does is it immediately builds athletics programs from high school and up that girls are joining. It basically ensures that there's equal representation, there's, there's an equal opportunity at all levels for girls to play sports in federally funded institutions. It creates a streamline to professional sports. You didn't really have many professional women's leagues at that time, mm -hmm. the WTA being the first of them, but this was an important step. Given the formation and the, the continued success of the WTA, to have the basis, the foundation of sustained growth for women's athletics going forward. It creates a pipeline. You mm -hmm. have all this talent being built up from a young age now, which you did not have before, in large numbers at least. And you mentioned that Title IX is almost always referred to or talked about with respect to sport. And the reason why that is, is because, like with equal prize money, it's talked about and argued against by men who feel like something of theirs is being taken away. It states clearly that women need to be given the same opportunity as men. When applied to sport, if there's a men's tennis program at a university, there needs to be an equivalent women's program as well, given the desire. Right. And it doesn't mean that they have to be offered the same sports, but the, the opportunity has to be equal. And finally, a little bit of context about women athletes at the time. A lot of women who lived at the time, who we've read emphasize that the view that athletic women were freaks is more pervasive than you can imagine. We like to think of that as a relic, and some people might minimize it, but apparently in the 60s and 70s, the idea of women as dominating athletic hulking figures was, was not only ridiculous to some people, but laughable. Not necessarily hulking as far as having a, a physicality akin to a man, but just the mere participation, the mere dedicating yourself to a sport was freakish behavior. Right. Why would you want to right. do that? Because it uh, interrupts your ordained journey into starting a family. It addresses this Victorian idea of women being largely sedentary. They're not supposed to sweat. They're not supposed to exert because those are manly activities. Those cultural values endured for a long time and in some ways still endure and you can see that in the differences between the way someone like Martina Navratilova was treated versus Chris Evert. Specifically how? Specifically in how Martina's fitness and athleticism was seen as a way to mock her whereas Chris Evert was seen as as you said earlier a dominant athlete who can do so without breaking a sweat, who makes it look very easy, who wore makeup on court, who looked as a woman should. And so those prevailing ideas about what women were supposed to be was something that the founders of women's tennis had to 
had to fight against, and in in some instances, indulge. Which is to say they had to toe the line. Exactly. They couldn't come firing out the gates saying, I'm here, I'm going to do whatever I want, I am who I am, you just have to deal with it. They still had to operate within the framework of that very conservative society in North America as far as how women should present themselves. Even in this new freedom that they earned for themselves as professional athletes. In all this, where is tennis? You know I'm a nerd about this kind of stuff. After the tennis world has gone open, so to speak, after it's been professionalized, it is the Wild West out here. Yeah, because there's so many entities that have a hand in the pot. It's the same same as today. Well, it's, it's a little wilder back then. So you have World Championship Tennis, the National Tennis League, you have the ILTF, which we know as the ITF now. None of them like each like the others. The ITF is always trying to undermine the successful professional tours, and this creates a bidding war in, you know, 69-70 that benefits the players quite a bit. These are the bosses fighting amongst themselves for the best players. World Championship Tennis has people like Rod Laver, Tony Roach, Ken Rosewall, Cliff Drysdale, and on the other hand, the National Tennis League is the first professional league to have women players which included Billie Jean King at the time. Then you have these independent pros who are represented by their national federations, and they're all playing a separate slate of events. You have, throughout the early 70s, various bans, boycotts, walkouts, strikes. It is, it's a crazy time to be in professional tennis because you see the establishment start to break down, and there's actually a measure of competition going on that benefits the players. And there wasn't that much prize money in the slams at that time. This idea that we currently have of the the four slams being these untouchable financial juggernauts, that wasn't the case back then. Right. And they may have had money, but they certainly weren't giving it out willy-nilly to the players. They certainly were not. (laughs) This created a perfect storm for the women's tour to emerge. In 1970... The Pacific Southwest Open, which was in Los Angeles, offers women one-eighth the prize money of the men's. And this is the actual breaking point. This is the moment when the top women say, you know what, Mm -mm, I'm done with this. Billie Jean King and the original nine, which included Rosie Casals, Julie Heldman, etc., approached Gladys Heldman, Julie's mother, who was a huge tennis supporter, was the publisher of Tennis World magazine, and asked, what can we do? You know, how do we get women paid on an equal plane as the men? How can we build a tour? Gladys Heldman connects with the Houston Tennis Association and the Texas Lawn Tennis Association and her friend, Joe Coleman, the chairman of Philip Morris Tobacco Company, and organizes this tournament in Houston, the very first Virginia Slims tournament. Gladys puts up $5,000 of her own money, Philip Morris puts up $2,500, so you got a tournament with a purse of $7,500. Philip Morris secures naming rights. Pretty quickly, they build the Virginia Slims Tour. The <laughs> Virginia Slims was a new uh, feminine cigarette being rolled out by Philip Morris. If you've ever known some older ladies in your family to smoke the very long, thin cigarettes, very fancy. It, imagine... 
uh, a professional sports league named after a cigarette. Yet here we are. Billie Jean said that she wasn't necessarily pleased about it, but she couldn't look a gift horse in the mouth and <laughs> kick it. What's the saying? D- don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Okay. That was it. On September 23rd, 1970, that's the fateful day when the original nine signed $1 contracts with Gladys Heldman. It established them as professional players on the Virginia Slims tour. The USTA threatened to ban them pretty quickly after, and they reneged on that as well. But the $1 contracts were supposed to protect them from being sued and from being banned from the major tournaments. So throughout the end of 1970 and early 1971, they've built this tour from nothing. In 71, the Virginia Slims tour boasts $309,000 in prize money. Billie Jean King becomes the first female athlete to break $100,000 in prize money in one year. And all of a sudden, you have a successful women's tour competing with the USTA tour and the ITF. We see all throughout this period that be it the USLTA, be it the ILTF, threatening to ban the woman, ban them over and over and over again because they're out here running wild on their own trying to get theirs. They're not willing to settle for the breadcrumbs. Okay, fine, you won't have those breadcrumbs. Here's the back part of the bread, the loaf of bread. How about that? You know, it was never a good faith argument to bring women's tennis into the fold or even into a close proximity to the attention and the money and the resources given to the men. And the USLTA and the the ILTF, they absolutely backed themselves and underestimated what these women could do on their own. These were women who would be out in parking lots selling tickets. They'd be playing these events. It's not enough to say, well, Billie Jean King won $100,000 in 1971 and won the first five tournaments of the year. But she was at those tournaments selling tickets in the parking lot, promoting the hell out of that tour, any chance that she could get. She had three to four jobs full time and also had to show up and play and play those tournaments. That's what these men did not bank on. The hard work and the grit and the determination of these women to get this tour off the ground. Right. So the early women's tennis players were not only professional athletes, they were also marketing professionals. They were promoters. They were (laughs) drumming up support in the cities that they went to. But interestingly, as you said earlier, the market was there. Like the interest was already there. And so those first few years of the women's tour, which later became the WTA, got successful pretty quickly. And what's interesting about that is that it got successful because it was marketed for its entertainment value, not because of its equal physical ability to the men. Mm -hmm. They weren't out here saying, come watch us, we're just as good as the men. They're saying, come watch us, we're going to put on a show and you're going to be entertained. And that is one of the, the metrics that folks try and use now to degrade women's sport. They try and say, well, you can't, hit a serve as fast as John Isner. Well, that's not the point. The point is there is a certain entertainment value separate and apart from faster, stronger, higher that the women are able to tap into with the public that is absolutely there. It's been there from the start. Mm -hmm. So in the early 70s, we have this burgeoning women's tour 
I want to talk a little about who are the major stakeholders in tennis at that time. We mentioned the Virginia Slims Tour, which was briefly known as the Women's International Tennis Federation, and they have players like Billie Jean King, later Margaret Court, Rosie Cassells, Carrie Melville-Reed. The other big stakeholder is the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association. They planned to get into promoting women's tennis when they realized how marketable it was. <laughs> And they, they create this alternate list of tournaments, an alternate competing tour, and their big chips are they have Chrissy Evert and Yvonne Goulagong, who were superstars in the early 70s, were just coming up, were delighting audiences. We're talking about a 15, 16-year-old Chris Evert at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Yvonne Goulagong emerges, crowds absolutely adore her. To the extent that Chris Evert laments later in her career, that she could be playing in her hometown of Fort Lauderdale against Yvonne Goulagong, and she would be the underdog because she's such <laughs> mm-hmm. a crowd favorite. Right. Now, many WTA partisans derided the USLTA's women's tour as a phantom tour, as having no players, having no events. And, okay, they had events. They had Everett and Goulagong, which were the, you know, the big ticket players. They also had Virginia Wade. Right. But the USLTA is feeling the heat. In 1972, they actually hired Gladys Heldman, who I'm sure they did not want to hire. She did not have the best reputation of being a team player, of being diplomatic. Like, this woman was a firebrand. Of taking shit from men. Exactly. Let's be frank. But she was not about to play the USLTA's game, right? She's appointed coordinator of women's tennis by the USLTA. It was kind of a peace offering to the women's tour. It doesn't work. She resigns in September. She goes back and forms the WITF, which is basically the Virginia Slims tour. They appoint a a very well-liked person named Edie McGoldrick at the USLTA to run their women's tour. But the success of Gladys Heldman's, quote, little broads, as she called them, it just didn't give them a chance at all. At this point, the USLTA is trying to find a way to blend the two tours together, to have one product that they will control. Right? They're, they're essentially trying to yep. buy out yep. the WTA as we know it now and, and have them under their auspices. Exactly. And, and getting Gladys Hellman on board was one, it was kind of an olive branch that they thought they were, <laughs> that, that would get them there and it, it didn't work out. Right. She sued them for antitrust violations. You'll see in the early days of professional tennis, antitrust was very popular. Heldman's lawsuit did not go forward in federal court. The WITF collapses. So the USLTA and the WITF merged and created the modern women's tour. But Gladys Heldman, who had been there from the start, been with Billie Jean King from the start in getting the WTA tour as we know it now off the ground, she had to sacrifice herself essentially for this joint path to the WTA to be to be formed. Yep. Out of the wreckage of that federal court decision, Heldman's resignation is formed the Women's Tennis Association. Billie Jean King is elected the first president, and we're on our way. Chrissy Everett, as we mentioned, played on the USLTA side 
Billie Jean King was publicly pissed off that Chrissy decided to play with the USLTA. And this is a an interesting time in history because we saw this depicted in the Battle of the Sexes movie. Chrissy Everett has even joked that she didn't know what she was doing. It wasn't her decision to make back then. She wished she had decided to go with Billie Jean. But she was 16, 17 years old. And guess what? Her father was making those decisions for her. Her father, who felt beholden to the USLTA for the resources put into Chrissy's development. Chrissy describes him as being a conservative figure, one of the most conservative people she's ever known. But what happens here is that at the onset of her career, Chrissy Everett is cast in one light as being conservative, as being apolitical, as just wanting to toe the line. And then a couple of years later, she shifts course. She's brought on board right away, and that's one of the geniuses of Billie Jean King. She was not somebody to, to hold grudges against people. She was willing to go to war with you and then come back and go to war with you again. And then when you're finally ready to join, come on board, you can have a five-course meal. You know? Right, like, you're family now. Exactly. <laughs> okay. That type of abstaining from animus, not taking it personally, is a skill and an innate ability that most of us just simply don't have. It's been lost to the ages. Yes, because Billie Jean King's role at the time and her personality was that she was very much a political figure. Like, she did PR. She was building a tour. She was also fighting against a reputation that she had to overcome. I mean, she had vocally supported abortion rights during the campaign for Roe v. Wade. She was a member of the National Organization of Women. There were stereotypes and built-in prejudices against her that she was trying to chip away at through her just the sheer force of personality. So if it meant I need to take shots at Chrissy Everett for not joining our tour, we'll do that. But if she does, it's water under the bridge. But at the same time, she has your genuine best interest at heart because she was also mad at Chris Everett for remaining an amateur in 1970 or 71 and foregoing the $40,000 that Chrissy had earned that year. Mm -hmm. She thought that that was absolutely nuts, and she told her so. We'll, we'll get into Chris Everett a bit more in a few minutes, but the other major stakeholders in tennis at the time are the ILTF, which of course you still see today, the ITF and their Grand Slam events, ILTF being the ITF. Right. The International Lawn Tennis Federation at the time. And during this this period, they were largely preoccupied with fighting all of these battles and wars with men's tennis. Of course, they had ideas of how the women's tennis tour should exist with regard to the ITF, but they were too busy banning ATP players in 1973. Um, they were fighting boycotts, telling people they couldn't come to Roland Garros. It was, it was just wild from the ITF, which at that time was very much the old guard of 20th century tennis. And finally, you have male tennis players who see themselves as a stakeholder in the success of women. Because many male tennis players saw the success of women's tennis as taking money out of their pockets. And piggybacking off of their success. They didn't seem to have right. any concept about television rights and profits from television at all, to my mind at that time. Because 
how in 1973 these men could look and see what Billie Jean King had just done with the Battle of the Sexes and the attention that it brought, not just to women, not just to the, the would-be WTA, but to tennis at large. How they can look at that and not see themselves as piggybacking off of her success <laughs> right. is beyond me. So at in during this period, many men saw women as riding the coattails of male tennis players, venerated figures like Arthur Ashe, didn't want to give up his money for the girls to play, as of course they were referred to. He said, why should we have to split our money with them? I mean, this begs the question, right? This presupposes that there's any sort of splitting of money. There was no splitting of money. No one was asking for men's prize money to be reduced, <laughs> right? This isn't how it worked. Billie Jean King publicly called Arthur Ashe a total pig. <laughs> Said that Arthur was a pig. He didn't get gender relations at all until his wife Jeannie helped him get it. Allegedly. This is directly from Miss mm -hmm. King. And then in 1976, Mr. Ashe says, quote, The women are content to let the men set the standards and then piggyback on our efforts. I think the men are worth more. I don't think that's chauvinistic. It's just honest. And then here's the real kicker. The men should negotiate separately and the women should negotiate separately. James, I ask you, where have you heard that before? Some... Yes. What, some 42 years later, where did you hear that? We've heard it from a 17-time Grand Slam champion just within the past 52 weeks, right? It's, it, it will blow your mind that we have not made any progress with the way we conceptualize equal prize money. While Billie Jean King is very much the the founder and the firebrand of women's tennis, Chris Everett emerges at the precisely right time to become its first superstar. And she fulfilled that promise. As a, a teenager, she starts to dominate in the early 70s. In her first full year on tour in 71, she reaches the U.S. Open semis. She wins seven titles that year as a 16-year-old. And she is, in a lot of ways, what women's tennis wanted and needed to promote the sport. She exhibited this quote-unquote traditional femininity that popular culture just ate up at the time. And she was a great athlete who didn't necessarily look like a great athlete. <laughs> and it's, it's horrible to talk in that way, but even Billie Jean, this feminist icon, spoke about... You know, wanting to be considered feminine while she was playing tennis. She told John Wooden in this great Sports Illustrated kind of roundtable that she wanted to be in a sport where she could still be considered feminine. She said, quote, Hopefully no longer are we regarded as muscle-bound Amazonian jerks. And it was crazy. It was jarring to me to read that from someone like Billie Jean King. But you kind of got a sense of what female athletes were up against at the time. And at the same time, you have Virginia Wade saying that she didn't want to let go of her sex and she refused to be muscular and resemble a man. This is a common refrain throughout the history of women in sports. Right. It continues now. 
in our in our first year of the body serve in our first few months we talked about ben rothenberg's new york times story about serena williams and how it tried to frame sort of her physicality in contrast to other women and you know it featured quotes that were disturbing from the coach of agnieszka radvansko who said he and agnieszka want very much for her to remain a woman they were <laughs> you know so this preoccupation among both observers of women's sport and practitioners of women's sport to retain their femininity is still very much a thing the serena story obviously cloaked that in layers of class and race that we don't see in the early 1970s or we don't see discussed very much just because the representation was so low but this is a thread throughout the history of women's sport and not only tennis but Chrissy Ebert as we look back people remember her as this the girl next door America's sweetheart anything you could want in a girl because at that time she was quite literally a girl not a woman <laughs> And then when she became a woman, she was acceptable as an athlete because her body was a certain way. Right. So Chrissy Everett was instrumental in comforting that old guard of tennis. They didn't know what was to come. But in the early 70s, you have this young woman from Florida who came up in, you know, a regular middle-class American family. They weren't rich. They were a tennis family. They were Catholic. They were very close and insular. It seemed like she knew how to move through this world. It's almost like she comforted the establishment of tennis only to perform this bait-and-switch around 1975 when she started really taking it to them. Because prior to that point, she talked a lot about, I could leave tennis at any point, if I wanted to settle down and have kids and be a wife, like that is that is my ideal. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. Like being the top tennis player in the world wasn't the be all end all, which was surprising in retrospect, given how successful she was. Right. But she talked ad nauseum about being willing to give that up. But that changed. It did change. So in those early years, she was traveling with her mom, Colette, she was very sheltered. She didn't go out and party and drink and all that with the other women on tour. She was young, right? She was 16, 17, 18. It seems that when she stopped traveling with her mom, she was able to branch out and have fun, starts dating Jimmy Connors. But early on, Jimmy Connors wanted her to retire from tennis and have children. And just say that's that. This is how many men viewed women's tennis players. I mean, Chris Everett was dominant. She was an incredibly gifted athlete. And this guy, Jimmy, was like, you know what? That's all cute and everything, but it's time for you to retire. Can you imagine the nerve of this man? Give up your multi-million dollar career in potential earnings. In 1975, there is no end in sight to the dollars that Chris Everett is going to be making. But still, women's tennis is so new and Jimmy Connors is the best player in the world, right? The best player in the world for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, that was his golden, that was his imperial era when they were dating. As the women's tour grows, 
Throughout the 1970s, Chris Everett's career blossomed. In many ways, the success of the WTA is her success. By the mid-70s, commentators, journalists, everyone is, is noting that the, the depth in women's tennis is increasing. There's 10 Virginia Slims tournaments in 1975. We have six different winners. Everett, Navratilova, Virginia Wade, Gulagong, King, and Court. Each tournament offers minimum $75,000. This is more than double the purse from 1971. All 10 of those tournaments are covered by CBS. And CBS at the time claimed that their coverage of the women's tour was beating the NBC men's coverage by two times. Now, we don't know that, but that's what CBS said. So women's tennis is in a very good place. It's building incredibly quickly. It's almost immediately successful. But it's fighting against this myth that by default, the woman's product cannot be as good as the men's. Without any interrogation or curiosity about the actual facts, that's the default position that folks go to. Right. And we see time and time again. Did Arthur Ashe have any facts, actual facts, before he blurted out all that mumbo-jumbo in 1976? <laughs> Right, and it, it wasn't just Arthur Ashe, it was, it was almost all of those it was top John men, Newcomb. Right? John Newcomb said right? that, in fact, the women are overpaid. Yes. They're paid too much. Rod Laver is actually one of the only ones I can't find on record saying something crazy. What's interesting to me is that between the battle of the sexes, boosting tennis's visibility, and the success of the women's tour... The men's tour is also benefited by this, right? Tennis becomes a massive sport. Probably the peak of tennis's popularity in the West comes in the 1970s. And a lot of that has to do with just the pure spectacle of Billie Jean King and these great, great women's players all playing at the same time. Yvonne, Chrissy, Martina, Virginia Wade. As we get to 1975, this is something of a transition year for Chris Ebert. This is the final breakup with Jimmy Connors. They've been on again, off again. She realizes that she loves competing. She loves being the best player out there. And she doesn't want to retire just yet. And probably most importantly, she's now traveling solo without her mom. She's famously, you know, indulging in some of the WTA parties. It was allegedly the first time she smoked marijuana. That's in print. That's not salacious. The, the journalist Grace Lichtenstein, who wrote a lot about WTA at the time, described Chrissy as not only a, a Catholic, but a cloistered Catholic. She was extremely sheltered, and 75 saw this, this kind of breakout, and you see a different personality from her. She had been derided as this ice queen, as someone who felt unknowable. And, and a lot changed, I think, around that time. She becomes a lot more vocal about pay equity. And 75 saw her first term as the president of the WTA. First of eight terms. 75 is also the year that the WTA issues an ultimatum to Wimbledon. They say, look, unless you give us pay equity, we are not coming to play next year. We're just not doing it. What happened was the All England Club announced the prize money in January of 1975. 
the women's purse was going to be 60% of the men's, and the WTA threatens to boycott. 40 members of the WTA signed a letter supporting a boycott. Jerry Diamond, who was appointed the executive director of the WTA in 74 and served for more than a decade, organized an alternate event, a grass court event in Newport, Rhode Island, at the Tennis Hall of Fame, you know, which exists now. But they organized this event basically just in case they had to boycott Wimbledon and as a, a bargaining chip, saying, we've got sponsorship, we've got an event that will play, we don't need you. And not only that, the agreement that those WTA players signed, a legally binding contract to play that Newport event, if Wimbledon did not acquiesce to the women's demands. So what that meant for Wimbledon, they couldn't just call the bluff and hope, well, you know, the women are going to break from that and come and play anyway. They legally could not do that. So Billie Jean King, as president, and Jerry Diamond as executive director, meet with the All England Club. They get some concessions. Women's quarterfinalists would make 80% of the men's in 75. And they decide not to boycott that year. Clearly, this is not a full concession to equalize prize money, but the gesture was made toward parity at some point. And you'll see throughout this episode that the, <laughs> the journey toward parity was kept deliberately vague. At the same time in 1975, there was another group of WTA players, commonly referred to in the press as Rebels, led by Leslie Hunt from Australia, who were vocally against Billie Jean, claiming that she didn't look out for the future circuit players and was protecting the spoils of the WTA for the top players only, accusing her of going to bat with this boycott against Wimbledon to secure more prize money for a very select few at the top of the women's game. This is an overlap with present-day discussions about not just equal prize money, but prize money distribution in general. That it's way too top-heavy, and that the players who are further down the rankings, they aren't able to survive, and that the top players aren't looking out for their best interest. Another similarity that spans four decades. Leslie Hunt said that, Outside the top 32, the next 60 girls were playing for $6,500 per week, meaning that that was the purse of these futures events. A huge drop-off from the top players. Hunt said that it's stifling the development of the sport on the lower levels, which Billie Jean King claims to support. Now, Billie's response to that, which may surprise some, quote, if they are good enough, they win the money. If they are not, they starve or go out to work saying also that these women, these rebels, didn't understand what went into securing sponsorships. She said that she wants what these so-called rebels want, but that it's taken the women 10 to 15 years to achieve what they have so far, and they need to wait. Ooh, Miss King was rough on those rebels. If they're good enough, they win the money. <laughs> and I understand this is a, you know, this is what, a at the time, a five-year-old tour? that was built on the blood and sweat of many of those original nine and, and the first stars of women's tennis in the 70s. So securing sponsorships was a, a full-time job mm -hmm. in many ways and required a lot of sacrifices from those top women. It's a valid uh, critique of Billie Jean King from Leslie Hunt, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean yeah. that Billie Jean had the bandwidth <laughs> to deal with that <laughs> right. at the time. Right. She had a lot on her plate. And, 
you wanted to talk about this rugged individualism with mm-hmm. Beijing King, and I think this is a good entryway for that. Yes, because professional sports and the WTA in particular are individualistic, right? It's based on this idea of pure meritocracy. Women's tennis and the original nine were an American invention in many ways. So this idea that if you are good enough, you will succeed, that is such, uh, this is this rugged individualism that Americans are brought up to believe wholeheartedly and might tell you a little bit about why not everyone connects with that ethos, right? So the WTA was a paradox because it was this collective labor action which which helped achieve a lot of these successes, but it was also founded in this individualistic ethos and this culture. And thrived off of the star power of these individuals. Exactly, right? The WTA again threatens to boycott Wimbledon in 1976. You have to understand as well that in 1973, the women had achieved equal prize money at the U.S. Open. Billie Jean King had threatened boycott there, and it worked. The USLTA was like, listen, we are not about this life anymore. You are going to get the money. <laughs> right. And then we it, can't fight you anymore. We fought you all over the map. And now we are, we are just going to concede. But then the pivot is to get money from the other Grand Slams. Wimbledon being the most prominent of the four and the next target 75, they got concessions. 76, with Chris Everett as the president of the WTA now, we're heading into Wimbledon with more demands being made by the WTA saying, listen, we didn't get the prize money last year. We want it this year. Spoiler alert, this carried on for 30 more years. Yeah. In 76, after this next threat to boycott, the WTA relents again because Wimbledon says, we have a plan to reach parity in a few years. Now, they didn't say how many a few meant, but they meant 31. <laughs> because that's what happened. And what's, what's very interesting to me, aside from this, is that this is Chris Everett in 1976, willing to forgo Wimbledon. In 1971 and 72, she said, I don't want to join Billie Jean King's tour because... I don't want to lose the chance to compete at Wimbledon at the U.S. Open. This is a young woman who's, I mean, her worldview changed pretty quickly. You in know? four years. Yeah. While doing this research repeatedly in 1976, we see it written and reported by the AP and all comers that the All England Club had already agreed that the woman would be brought up to parity within a few years. It's framed in that in that way, without any specificity. It's giving the impression that there's an agreement in place of a set period of time with a goal that will be worked toward. Like maybe in three years, you will get equal prize money. Why are you, why are you holding us to this fire now and threatening the integrity of this tournament? Why are you doing too much? Why are you trying to have your cake and eat it too when we've already conceded that we are going to do this in a few years? That was reported widely and almost always placed in the stories as as a voice 
on behalf of the All England Club, mm. even though somebody wasn't representing the All England Club. Right, nobody meant, was quoted. It no, wasn't attributed it was, to anyone. It was meant to undercut the argument. Like it, This is where editorializing in journalism is at its worst. Mm-hmm. The British tabloids were wild about that with, with regard to Wimbledon because it was very much, girls, calm down. Yeah, and you it, know, it also... You'll get your money if you, we want you to get your money. It also shows me that these men can never be trusted. <laughs> when it comes to issues of equality... And when it comes to even the perception of ceding one's power, of giving up space to let women in, not even like giving up your money, because that wasn't what the issue was. They weren't asking for men to take a pay cut to give some of their purse to the woman. It was just about being brought up to equity, right? Right. Once there's any discussion about men letting go of their preordained superiority they cannot be trusted to do the right thing that's so interesting you mentioned that because think of those say 10 years between like 65 and 75 how many men and women had to reckon with the idea that men and women could be seen as equal right because there were many women who were at work entrenching that inequality between men and women, too. It wasn't just men, sort of reinforcing that power dynamic. Margaret but, Court, right. Virginia Wade. Phyllis Schlafly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there was this immense social and cultural movement across the Western world that was telling people that women could do basically everything that men could. That was, I mean, that's foundational, right? That's something that shatters a lot of people's worldviews. Which is why you see so many shocks across. <laughs> I mean, we're looking at one sport, but this is an incredible shift in the way that people think. So the women are repeatedly threatening to boycott Wimbledon to get that next peg on the Grand Slam equal prize money, career slam, if you, <laughs> right. if you wish. And so what are the arguments that we see propping up opposing it? We talked about Arthur Ashe previously, where he said the men should negotiate separately and the women should negotiate separately. Which I now ask you, James, isn't that what they were doing? Weren't the women having private meetings with their president, with uh, their chairman, as well as the chairman of the All England Club to advocate for themselves? They were, indeed. He said, I think the men are worth more. I don't think that's chauvinistic. It's just honest. And the top women players were saying, well, we we have earned the same prize money as you all. So give it to us. But yeah, they were very much negotiating separately. So I don't, I don't totally get that argument. The other argument is that the men play more. They play best mm-hmm. of five. They spend more time on court. The men even went and did calculations. They came to press conferences with graphs, spreadsheets, saying, well, you know, the women have actually made $2.50 per serve, and whereas the men, we make $3.50 per serve, so this is moot. Yeah. Um, this is, this fuzzy math is very entertaining to me, because, as you said, like, tennis players came with this math, the 
chairman of the All England Club came up with these bizarre calculations about how, based on the number of minutes and seconds spent on court, that women have actually earned way, way more uh, than they deserve. And it's, it's just, it's wild. You know, the feminist movement was trying to understand how much unpaid labor women had done in the home. And men's tennis players <laughs> are trying to calculate how much unpaid labor they have done on the tennis court versus women who have been paid for all of what? Four years? Um, John Newcomb said equal money comes down to equal performance. And when you have the full facts, I think you will find the girls are overpaid. What are the full facts, John? What are your <laughs> it's metrics? Math. It's math. It's statistics. Arthur Ashe said, aside from Yvonne and Chris, there is no one in their class to merit higher prize money. Here, at least, Arthur Ashe is conceding that it's not about who can hit the ball harder right. or serve faster. It's about a more elastic value judgment. Mm-hmm. To counter that, Chris Everett says, apart from Connors, Nastasi, Borg, and Ash, there are few attractions on the men's circuit. Women's tennis has come on enormously. There are so many attractive new faces and names. We think the time is right to demand equal money. We have to go in now and stake our claim. It is no good chipping away year after year, getting small increases. We are confident we will get 90% backing from our members of the Women's Tennis Association. This is fascinating to me because looking back, I did not expect Chris Everett to say something like this. To say forcefully, there are few attractions on the men's circuit, aside from the top players, that we are giving you a better product. That is unequivocal. And then the the other major argument that you see back then and now is entertainment value. How much revenue and how much attention does women's and men's tennis generate? Isn't the mere fact that the women's tour grew so exponentially in the first five years, despite every effort by the USLTA to undercut it, proof that the women's product was viable and that it was a huge draw? (laughs) Yes. Underpinning this argument from the perspective of the women's tour is that Billie Jean King and the other founders shifted the argument from women as great athletes to women as entertainers. Billie Jean made the argument that women's tennis is excellent because we will generate interest. You know, we will give you personalities. We will give you entertainment. That's how the tour was born. Right. It was going to parking lots, going to strip malls, canvassing, getting people to buy tickets, getting people to believe in them. And come out and and they saw the fruits of that. That Mm. was their proof that, yes, we have entertainment value because we did this. People showed up. It worked. We were successful. We are making money now. And when when I played the Battle of the Sexes versus Bobby Riggs, you didn't come just to watch me beat a man. You didn't come to for me to prove that I'm better than a 50-something retired men's tennis player. You came for the spectacle. And you paid good money You came to for watch the social, cultural context. Right? You came to see the spectacle play out against the backdrop of the women's lib movement and what's going on in my own household. What you're seeing on screen is helping me make sense 
of what's going on in my home. <laughs> right. It's making me understand what's happened in my home and what I could do going forward. The personal is political. Yeah. Right? And with King, of course, you have the uh, the ideal package. You, She's a ham. She's fascinating. She's brash, but also very, very American. Right? She's independent. She very vocally wants to earn her own way. In her words, equal prize money is not given, but it's earned. She insists that women's tennis is such a great product that we are worth it. That we will show you, we'll prove to you that we're worth it. Also, it escapes the trap of pitting men's athletic ability against women's athletic ability. When you focus on the entertainment value as something that can't necessarily be fully quantified... And that will then come back to bite you later on and continues to do so to this day. When you don't base your existence on being able to serve as fast as a man, then that's not something that that somebody can come at you to undercut your existence. Right. So now we, you know, we've been in the big four era for a good 15 years. This would undercut Billie Jean King's argument. She said back then... If we don't draw as well, we shouldn't be paid as much. Period. Right? So based on that logic, she would be in favor of women being paid less when they generate less interest or less revenue. Obviously, we disagree with that now because the metrics are so confusing. And the metrics are biased. The metrics are skewed against women to this day. It's not the same playing field. Mm Mm-hmm. So we don't know if that was purely PR or that was something she believed, but the PR side of her made her a very attractive American figure with with this great Protestant work ethic. One of the future WTA presidents, Pam Shriver, had something to say that you found interesting on this topic. Mm-hmm. This is very much in keeping with my worldview. Pam said, in the U.S. in 1973... The depth in women's tennis was nowhere near what it is today. But once you treat people with the respect of equality, they will fulfill their end of the obligation. It's this idea that when you create the conditions for someone to succeed, that they will. I think Pam's view of of women's sport has come true. I think that when you treat people equally, when the U.S. Open gives equal prize money from 1973 that people rise to the occasion, right? And it's not only emotional. It's also very realistic. When you allow tennis to become a career for a woman, and not just a hobby, when you allow it to become something they can do for a living and start from when they're very young, you will create depth, you'll create pride among athletes, and an actual realistic life that can be built. So when I say, or you know, when we say that we don't all start at the same place, like the infrastructure for women's tennis is is behind, right? Like that's that's had to be built. It didn't just exist. It's not like men and women started at the same level and men just excelled. We're talking about women having unequal access at the country club level in the pre-open era. Right. Let's not even talk about black women. We're talking about 
once the open era starts, women not being paid nearly in the same vicinity, kids at home not being able to sell to their parents, well, hey, mom and dad, I want to be like Billie Jean King in 1969. And they'd be like, why? What are you going to do? Like, <laughs> right. A, you're going to not have a family to do what? But then Billie Jean King, Gladys Heldman, Virginia Slim's tour takes off, Title IX happens. Opportunities, that pipeline, that seeing yourself in the future based on what you see in the present starts to happen. Young women, young girls start to be able to envisage a future for themselves in tennis, in sport. Great that Billie Jean and Chrissy and Martina did all that. Fantastic that Leslie Allen, Althea Gibson, Ora Washington, Venus Williams, Zena Garrison, that these black women in tennis existed as well to show that young black girls could do this as well. It's consistently about expanding the net, expanding the opportunities for all women in tennis. And if you cannot see that men and women don't start from the same place, that the opportunities are not the same, that women have had to fight tooth and nail to get where they are, if you can't see that inherent systemic disadvantage, you've got to do your work and do the research. And so when you're out here telling me that, oh, well, men are just naturally better, men do this better, Arthur Ashe saying, oh, I think the men should be paid more. I don't think that's chauvinistic based on what metric, based on taking what into consideration. Have you considered all these systemic disadvantages? Because you cannot make those blanket statements without taking into account the ways women have been disadvantaged in sport to where they're not able to be at the same level of whatever metric you're using. Because whatever metric you're using is flawed because of this. Mm. Yeah, so actually doing this research has made me, of course I understood all the cultural baggage that goes along with women as athletes, but it made me really hone in on why equal prize money is the issue perennially, right? Why the WTA is seen as the fight for equal prize money rather than the fight for existence of women's tennis. It's because equal prize money and money in general uh, affords independence. It affords the realization of dreams. It's not only changing people's ideas, but it changes the facts. It allows young women and eventually young black women to find a career in tennis where they normally would never have had one because it required an independent income. So, you know, when millionaire athletes are fighting for equality, when the WTA is paying record prize money at Shenzhen, for example, at the end of the year, this is, of course, you're, you're paying money to very privileged athletes, but you're also part of a historical conversation about paying people what they're worth and creating opportunities down the line. Or paying people more than what they're worth just because. Sure. <laughs> sure. Right. Creating jealousy on the part of the ATP tour for them mm. to then up their yeah. year in prize yeah. money. We get to the 80s. Wimbledon still hasn't given equal prize money. The US Open has granted equal prize money. But Billie Jean King still has issues with the US Open. Threatening a boycott in 1981. 
again, they, they implemented this tactic of having uh, a separate concurrent event organized to, to push the issue, to really put the USTA under pressure. This time, they were agitating for an increase to women's prize money and better TV coverage, better prize money across the board. Right. Throughout the rounds. So it was not just the women's singles draw. There were issues with the fact that the draw was smaller than the men's. So they were earning equal prize money compared to the men, but they were only having 96 players in the field. They were earning equal prize money at the top. The winners were (laughs) getting the same amount of money. And one of the things that I found particularly cute from the men was one of the arguments that they used to say, that well, the women shouldn't be paid the same as the men was because we have 128 players in our field and they only have 96. Well, this is something that the women have wanted right. for years. So give us 128. For a decade. Like they've said, listen, we want 128. You're not giving it to us. So how can we be held to account for something that's not our doing? We want 128 players in the field, but you're not giving it to us. So how can you then say that that's a reason why we shouldn't be given equal money? At the same time, the political nature of the WTA tour is starting to change. The lineage is starting to whittle on the WTA. We have new stars emerging. Martina and Chrissy carried the WTA from 1978 onwards. That was the rivalry, one of, if not the greatest sporting rivalry in the history of all sports, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova. They're getting to the end of their careers. Chris Everett retires in 1989. Martina Navratilova plays on for a long time, but her political capital is not what it was when you have this new generation of Steffi Graf, deeply apolitical, Monica Seles, the starlet teenager who is wrapped up in a paparazzi frenzy, this new era of tennis paparazzi, and the political nature, the need to survive on a week-to-week basis is just not there anymore on the WTA tour. Because, in a sense, they have arrived. But that brings with it a whole new set of conundrums. Right. We haven't. We actually haven't talked about Martina very much, but she very much fought for the WTA alongside the elder Billie Jean and Chris Everett. She defected from Czechoslovakia. She became an American citizen. She's been very politically vocal since that time. You know, she's been critical of the U.S. government. She's been very supportive of women's tennis. Martina was a key figure in that time. She was an American political figure. Absolutely. And of course, she came with a a whole load of other challenges. But Martina, as the 80s go on and into the early 90s, when Steffi and Monica are the dominant figures in women's tennis, Martina is criticizing Steffi for being basically a disappointment (laughs) for not taking her role as the number one player seriously enough for not advocating for women's tennis for basically being indifferent aside from her own career whereas that charge could have been levied against chris everett at the start of her career and it was and then she course corrected steffi graf never did she never had to you can make the argument that the survival of the tour wasn't ever critically upon her shoulders or you can make the argument that she was not willing to accept it right 
that she was not willing to wear that crown as so many had done before her. So through the 80s and 90s, you see ebbs and flows in the WTA. The mid-90s were seen as an ebb. There was, there was a lot of chatter in the major sports publications about how tennis is in trouble in general, but the WTA especially is in trouble. The, the name sponsors are out. For the very first time, they don't have a title sponsor in either Virginia Slims or Kraft. Ratings are down. Supposedly, interest is waning. And this is happening on the men's tour as well. Sally Jenkins in Sports Illustrated 1994 says, quote, The malaise extends all the way to your local tennis courts. At the height of the tennis boom in 1978, 35 million Americans played the game. That number has shrunk to 22 million. Racket sales in the U.S., which represents roughly half the world's tennis equipment market, fell by 22.6% last year. As for tennis shoes, Nike suffered a 36% drop in U.S. sales in 1993. And this is attributed to a downturn in women's tennis. They, they immediately say that, like, well, the women are struggling. There's a vacuum created by the absence of Monica Seles, unfortunately due to the stabbing. Steffi Graf is a dud as a star, essentially. That, that's the argument I mean, that's being made. Right. The argument is that she's okay with carrying on being excellent, but she doesn't really want to be a star. There's this rise in individualism at the top of not only women's tennis, but all professional sports. Mm-hmm. This is something that I can make a blanket comparison with West Indies cricket. I always bring it back to the cricket of on course. this show. West Indies had just come off a two-decade span where they were arguably the most dominant professional team in the world, unbeaten for two decades, be it infrastructure, a lack of development on the youth level, waning interest due to the rise of professional sports overseas, the influence of basketball in the Caribbean. All these things contributed to the pipeline drying up in the West Indies. And so this team now struggled in the mid-90s, but they had this one bright, shining star in Brian Lara. And he bore the brunt of the criticism for his genius, not having people around him. It's an imperfect comparison because this was a team sport, but he was one of the brightest individual stars in the world. And it was enough. It was seen as enough for folks to just do you and get yours. It wasn't okay for the West Indian public who are accustomed to having people out here fighting for flag and country against British imperialism. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality of professional sport in the early 90s and onward was this, I'm here to get mine, to make my millions, to, to get as many sponsors as I can and have my family be okay rather than my team, my country, my league, my colleagues. This is the direction that professional sport was taking. Right. Like, that's the Michael Jordan prototype, right? But in tennis, the WTA was always expected to have an advocate superstar, not just a star, not just Stephanie Graf, the dominant 
record-breaking superstar tennis player, they also had to have a political figure because they had already, they've always had that. They had to have someone fighting for the very existence of women's tennis. They had to have somebody who would rise to the top of the game at 20 years old and just accept that this was their path as well. This was their dual path. And, you know, we're still looking for that. We're, we're still looking for Coco Goff and Naomi Osaka to be dominant tennis players and to be able to articulate complex political thoughts at the same time. That hasn't changed. And that's something that's really built into the ethos of women's tennis, I think. It doesn't even have to be complex thoughts. It has to be a willingness to engage, period. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I think is super interesting is that so much of this this discussion in, say, 95, 96 is who will come around to drag us out of this nadir in tennis. And little did they know, they were so, so close. They were years, mere months away from an imperial period on the WTA. Today we can call it the Venus Envy period, where... Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport, the Williams sisters, Kim Clijsters later. Monica Sellis Monica Sellis. They create this... Justinena. Just an incredibly heightened, successful, golden era. Another golden era of WTA tennis. The emergence of Jennifer Capriotti. Yes. That, and all of this happening at the same time, made the argument that women's tennis deserved to be paid the same as men. But in 1995, that argument wasn't, it wasn't clear. When this new golden era emerges at the end of the 1990s, it also coincides with the death of the ATP tour. (laughs) Right. Just the tragic, precipitous decline, decay of the ATP tour. Which again, again was temporary. Right, like, so in, in the moment... There are so many contemporary critics saying tennis is dead on both sides. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to make money? And we are mere years away from golden eras on both sides. Mm -hmm. But if at that time you were one of these people saying, well, women's tennis is trash and I'm going to be out here repping Thomas Johansson (laughs) as the epitome of tennis standards, athletically, entertainment-wise... All that as emblematic of men's t- tennis's superiority. I hope you've been in several bins for the last two decades because right. you are emblematic of what is entirely wrong about the sport superstructure. Uh, yeah. So it becomes clear as we... Sorry. Apologies to Thomas Johansson. This was right. not a, a specific personal dig at you. you no. It just is what it is. Nor Mark Philippoussis or Martin Verkirk, or Arnaud Clément, or any of the surprise Grand Slam finalists of that era. But tennis is a very young sport, and it is cyclical. We are in a period where men's tennis is extremely successful, largely on the backs of three or four players. Anyway, back to this equal prize money business at the Grand Slams. 1973, the U.S. Open awarded the winners the same prize money, Great. 1975 onwards, Wimbledon upped its ante and then kept falling back on this idea that, well, 
no, the tournament pays the women 70% of the men like we do. Like, we are trash, but we are best of the trash. Ex- except for the U.S. Open. But we, yeah. don't, we don't consider them. I call your attention back to this argument that the women were met with in 75 and 76. Why are you agitating here to have it all now when we've already agreed to parity in the next few years? It did not happen. It absolutely did not happen. Right. Remind them that was in 1976. That was 1976. And so what we had and what we saw for the next 30 years was a distinct type of petty misogyny that you'd be hard-pressed to find elsewhere for such a sustained period of time. The women had got to 70% of prize money for the men by the mid-70s at Wimbledon, eventually up to 80%. By 1991, Steffi Graf, when she won Wimbledon, she made £216,000 as compared to Michael Stieck's £240,000. In effect, Steffi made 90% as much as Michael Stieck. We're heading into Wimbledon 1992 now, and John Curry, the Wimbledon chairman, who was a real piece of work. I don't know if folks out here had personal relationships with him, had working relationships with him that paint him in a better light, but his words, as unearthed through this research... (laughs) Reveal him to be a real piece of shit. There's no other way to put it. He has hits upon hits. He says in 1992, There is no doubt that the women's game is more attractive than it used to be. But it is still our view that it does not command the same demand of the public and television at this stage. We have been in close communication with the women players and we are aware that they sincerely feel that it's not fair. But we have reached a compromise which we feel is fair and reasonable. Now, James, what do you think that compromise was? If the women in 1991 were already making 90% on the mm-hmm. dollar, will 90 you, cents on the dollar. Will you tell the people what the compromise was? The compromise was an increase in prize money adjust the final stage for the winner and the runner-up of 0.6%. <laughs> 0.6%. <laughs> Wimbledon had already gotten to over 80% by the late 70s. Mm. This is 20 years later. And so they've decided through the golden era of Martina and Chrissy, through the 80s, through the greatest rivalry tennis has ever seen, that they were just going to go step by step. Through Martina's nine Wimbledon titles. And so in 1992, Steffi again wins. She gets... 24,000 more pounds, she gets 240,000, and Agassi makes 265,000. 0.6% increase for Steffi, relative to Andre. In 1998, John Curry, still Wimbledon chairman, this prize money issue is coming up again. I feel this is ripe for a dramatic reading. Can, can you do the received pronunciation? Because I feel that a Wimbledon chairman would speak in, in royal tones. Well, I don't know if I can do a, royal a received... Mm-hmm. I'll, do, I'll conjure something. It's very clipped. I don't know if it's going to be... What do you call it? The, the received? The RP. The yes. RP. I don't know if it's going to be that, but it's going to be something. Quote, I always compare the women's tennis and men's tennis to boxing. Why do you pay a lot more to go see a heavyweight fight? Because you know the heavyweight is going to beat the lightweight. 
Sometimes it's over in two seconds, but you still pay the price. I'm confused. Honestly, this is easily one of the stupidest things I've ever read. <laughs> it's so dumb. Boxing is actually used now as the best example in favor of equal prize money. <laughs> to undercut because this it's idea it's of... not about time on court. Exactly. And it's not about physical strength necessarily because you could have a heavyweight fight with two 300-pound super fit dudes be a complete bust whereas the lightweight fight is so much better and so much more entertaining mm. hello oscar de la hoya floyd may floyd what is his name mayweather yeah and then in 1999 curry returns again he says quote we do surveys of all the people who come on a regular basis and in three surveys over the last 10 years 70% of the people say that first and foremost, the thing they want to watch is men's singles. <laughs> is that is that your, your best? That's the best I can do. British, Was it terrible? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not English, so I don't know. You, you wanted me to do it like super pompous, mm. so I tried. In 1992, there was a 0.6% concession. In 1993, the women made 90.2% at the, the final stage. 94, it went down 89.9. 95, 89.9. 96, 89.2. We have three years of 90%. In 2000, it's up to 90.1. And then we finally see some movement here. In 2001, 92.5. 2002, 92.6. Come on. <laughs> 2003, 93%, 2004, 93, and then 2005 and 2006, both 95%. But what I want folks to understand here is (laughs) these Wimbledon folks came up with a number and stuck with it. That's what they did. You have Martina Navratilova out here making 17.1 thousand pounds, 17,100 pounds, which is a random number. But she's paid that only because it's exactly 90% of what Bjorn Borg made. Like, it was arbitrary, but not. Right. What's galling is that this isn't evidence-based. Right? Like, if they said, okay, on the BBC, the women's final earned this rating, so we're going to pay you this percentage of the men's purse. That's not how it was It was conceived. It was some random number. 906 89.9. Like, it wasn't based on the actual market value no. of women's status versus men's status. They came up with a grand sum for the purse and then yeah. had to go and, like, screw the women somehow. Right. In 1999, Curry said, The women have every right to request, but to demand it, I think, is hurtful and damaging to Wimbledon. Well, yours is much better than mine. Hurtful and damaging to... To the flowers? To ask for equal prize money is hurtful and damaging to the, simply the, what, the image of Wimbledon? This is why it's so easy to pick on Wimbledon, because they're, not only are they seen as the premier tournament on the calendar, they're also seen as the most stodgy and backward. They could have easily cut down their flower budget. Right. Which is, is a point that the Wimbledon leadership made 
is that they spend a shit ton of money on flowers. That is not something that we mention facetiously. In 1999, Corey, as, as recently as 1999, Corey also said that the women actually earn 125 to 150% more than men per point because of the shorter format. Right. And so this is when I talked about fuzzy math earlier. This is, this is math that really, it confounds the logical brain. Because since when were athletes play, paid by point or by second on court? In 2003, this is deeply embarrassing to tennis as a sport. In 2003, Burley Bra Company chipped in 66,000 pounds to equalize pay between men and women. This is how petty and small the pay gap was at that time. And you know why Burley Bra did that? Because they could not have spent that money better <laughs> to get that type of publicity. Right? Exactly. In 2001, Rick Riley of Sports Illustrated wrote the story that made me laugh. He said, throughout sporting history, Sports Illustrated has been polemical, has been uh, inflammatory in, in ways good and bad. But in this way, it was arcing toward justice, as we say. Rick Riley wrote, Did you hear what happened to Venus Williams after she won Wimbledon on Sunday? She was robbed. She had $52,923 ripped right out of her purse in broad daylight. Instead of getting $705,109, which men's winner Goran Ivanisevic received on Monday, she earned about a new Lexus less. You talk about a grass ceiling. <laughs> I mean, what a great turn of phrase. But this encapsulates this era where women's tennis was so popular and so successful. And you had, you know, Ivanisevic was a, a great champion, having reached the finals many times before and faltering. But men's tennis was was at an ebb, was at a nadir in popularity. And someone like Venus Williams making really a, like a marginal amount less was seen as patently ridiculous. The point is, there was no reason why it couldn't have been equal. Right. And the Be fact that it wasn't it was, was pointed. Because it was not evidence-based. No, and it was pointed, pointedly done so. That small of a sum could have been found from any number of budgets. Yeah. But Wimbledon, 30 years on, after saying, we are going to make this happen within a few years, they wanted to make a point. They wanted to put these women in their place. I have to say... Back when this pandemic started, I, I got this idea and I went through and did all this research and math and come to find out only like three days ago that Ben Rothenberg had written a piece yeah. <laughs> for Racket. You had like done the Excel spreadsheet and everything. I had and... done so much work <laughs> and then I happened upon this piece. So credit to Ben for the, <laughs> the piece that he had done for Racket that was a long read as well. Uh, I in no means want to pretend like this is original, even yeah. though it was original in my head. <laughs> But the math had already been done and had been replicated by you. In, in 2006, famously, it's the subject of an ESPN 30 for 30, Venus versus Venus Williams, at the time the defending champion of Wimbledon, wrote a letter to the Times of London demanding equal prize money finally. In 2006, Roland Garros had finally rolled out equal prize money for men and women, and Wimbledon was the holdout. That's the thing. The French Open was shit as well. 
right. They right. were doing kind of the same thing. It's just that Wimbledon it's just is that, an easy target. The, the stature of Wimbledon and their image. And the way but, they present themselves yeah, yeah. as being holier than thou and blah, blah, blah. The moral leader. Blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. So Venus Williams really took this upon herself to be the next, kind of the next torch holder as a, a political figure in women's tennis, fighting for equal prize money. Wimbledon finally, finally granted it after the defending champion publicly embarrassed them, right? I mean, she she embarrassed them internationally. It was, it was taken up by the House of Commons <laughs> in Britain. Like, it in became Britain. a political issue within society. Like, this was something that there was no escaping it at this right. point. So in 2007, finally, the women's champion was paid the same as the men's. And, and who was that woman's Venus champion? Venus Williams is the first one Fittingly. to reap the benefit. It's, it's poetic. But uh, Ben Rothenberg pointed out that it actually wasn't until 2019 that prize money was made equal across all draws in women's and men's tennis. Meaning the same number of entrants, the same number of qualifying entrants... The same number of money paid at each level, each round, leading up to the finals. Right. Because for a while it was it was misleading to say that, well, the US Open was paying equal prize money because they were just doing it for the winners. And there right. wasn't parity throughout the draw. So in nineteen eighty, Billie Jean King was fighting for an equal number of entrants in the women's singles draw. It was ninety six. In eighty one it moved up to one twenty eight. Similarly, in 2019, finally, the women's qualifying draw at Wimbledon was moved from 96 to 128, and that was the moment, just last year, where prize money was made equal across the board. What are your takeaways or cautions that you want to issue with this episode with respect to what we've presented? (laughs) What has the research brought, where has it brought you to? yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier that I I had a newfound appreciation for the economic argument that, of course, I understood the cultural and social drivers toward equality in women's tennis, but I didn't fully grasp that equal prize money was so fundamental to the fight. Because, you know, I used to say, wait, this isn't just about equal prize money. This is about everything, top to bottom. Like, this is a foundational paradigm shift and i still believe that but at the same time equal prize money is so is so central to this fight because at the time it was about providing women the option to choose this as a career but it's also about the idea that if you treat people equally and with respect that they will repeatedly rise to the occasion and typically those people are already rising to the occasion. You know, they're they're already overachieving. They're already performing at twice the level. They're already trying twice as hard. Zena Garrison talked about that when we spoke with her, that she, you know, you hear so frequently that that black people are taught from a young age that they need to be twice as good. And in women's tennis, of course, I mean, black female tennis players have to be uh, probably four times as good to create those kind of opportunities for themselves. So one of the big takeaways for me is that pay equity traces a line from 1970 to today. 
50 years. Yeah. Pay equity affords genuinely equal opportunity. And we've seen that the difference in money is not necessarily always that much. Mm-hmm. It's symbolic. What are we holding on to with that symbolism today, 50 years after the fact? One of the other things that sticks out to me in doing this research is just how far the WTA has fallen with respect to its political leaders. It's taken potentially a social political crisis in the United States to have Naomi Osaka emerge, to have Mm -hmm. potentially Coco Gauff emerge, to have Sloane Stevens emerge. What we're seeing is a lot of black women emerge on the WTA right now. Again, it's black women emerging. We had Venus leading the fight for equal prize money at Wimbledon in 2007, and then Serena coming to the fore after that. And now we have this crop of black women tennis players picking up the mantle. And again, it's it's US-centric, as it was in the 70s and into the 80s. What is it that's not being translated with the other WTA members around the globe for them to have a political interest in their own well-being. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we seeing or having expectations of European players, of Australian players, of white players now to be political on the WTA tour? Where did that go wrong? Can we just lay that at the feet of Steffi Graf and Monica Seles. Monica gets a, a pass for being stabbed in the back. That's just the way it is. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know, you do not know how she would have developed personally and politically in a public way had that not happened because she was still a teenager at that time. Right, but I, th- I think it's worth the WTA trying to engage seriously with their other, you know, with their members from Eastern Europe, from Asia, from Africa from Southeast Asia, and trying to understand what what are the pressing issues that affect them today. Because as we said, the WTA was filtered from the beginning through a Western, especially North American, political lens. So if, for example, Simona Halep is one of the greatest drivers of, of traffic, which we know that, that to be the case, what issues motivate someone like Simona Halep. And that's a really difficult proposition when a lot of the players today are insistently apolitical. Consider too that, yeah, Chris Everett was the top player in the world in 1976-1977, but they weren't these huge entourages following these players around. Chris Everett was still able to just be Chrissy in the locker room. Right, right. She was still reliant on relationships formed in the locker room. Mm-hmm. The, the tennis lifestyle wasn't as insular as it is now. There weren't multiple coaches, physios, all these hangers-on that presumably insulate you from being aware or more acutely aware of everything that's going on around you. And also, like, let's be real, like, there's just so much money in tennis right now. How do you cut through all of that mm-hmm. to get to a place where the WTA players feel like their survival is still essential and in jeopardy? Right. So 
the way that I view tennis today is, is this a, a success story? You know, is women's tennis so secure that superstar players don't have to worry about that stuff? And is that seen as a success of the women's movement? It, that might be it, right? The irony is that the women themselves are secure, but I don't think the tour is. Mm, mm. And Fair how enough. do you make the women yeah. concerned enough about the tour to sacrifice their millions and their comfort for the good of the tour? And how do you help those women who are interested, who then get met with obstacles and being undercut at every turn by the men, by the ATP tour? Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the WTA doesn't exist in a vacuum by itself and not in relation to the ATP tour. The men actively undercut the WTA all the time. Right. So one of the other takeaways is this uh, proposed merger of the two tours. Is it viable? Is it advisable? And of course, there's so much to discuss about that. Billie Jean King from the get-go was trying to entreat men's players to negotiate alongside her because she felt that they they had a better leverage as a bargaining unit, right? as men's and women's tennis players, which I still agree with. So one of the takeaways here is that tennis in general and men's tennis has benefited from women's tennis asserting itself, but over many years has also undercut the success or or tried to explain away the success of women's tennis. And so I think a merger... For superficial reasons as well. So a merger, in order to be successful, would require a majority of the men's players to... Take to women ad- seriously. To admit, right, that, that women are a, a huge draw, that they're superior athletes, that they're entertaining. To put their egos to the side. Right. To put their machismo, their chauvinism, their biases. So that's something else to keep an eye on. I would just want to caution that it's not just a wow, what a moment, let's do this thing as presented by Federer and then retweeted by Nadal and all these men at the top. I think it's healthy to have a measure of skepticism to really hold the players involved. I'm not talking about tennis players, but the players involved in this potential merger to task, to hold their feet to the fire. Because there's a lot of history at stake. As much as... Quite a few of the recent WTA players in tennis history haven't put the the history and the the survival of the WTA tour as their focus, as something that's important. The tour still is a unicorn, like that it exists and how it started, how it came to be the people involved who made it happen, the people who put their best interest to the side for the survival of the tour and the greater good of the tour, that is, that's not a story that you'd expect. That is not the American way. We (laughs) talked about it being like an American-centric formation of the WTA tour, but that is not the American ethos. Right. So that's actually a very optimistic place to end, is that... We, we talked about that pipeline for young female athletes starting from elementary school. That didn't exist 
over the past 50 years for basketball and soccer and a bunch of other popular sports. Women's basketball went through a lot of ebbs and flows. Women's tennis has been there, right, since 1970. It is is really the apotheosis of successful women's sports leagues, and it has provided a place for successful collegiate athletes to land. And so while there have been issues, this is this is kind of the goal at this point. When basketball and soccer has lost so many incredible athletes through the 70s and 80s because there simply wasn't a place to play, women's tennis provided that. And that, that has to be a, a success of Billie Jean King's vision and of the feminist movement in general. Okay. Thank you for listening. We have been long-winded and taken up way too much of your time. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I am Jonathan. And I am James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at the body serve on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find us on any podcast app that allows you to download or stream podcasts. We are everywhere. Just search the Body Serve Tennis Podcast. Thanks for listening. Till next time.